Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. A very warm welcome to all of you, and especially to the 15 young talents we invited from Europe. It's the fifth time that we have this week the European China Talent Program here at Merrick's. We are very happy to have you here. But let's turn to our guest of tonight. And first of all, I would like to say my name is Kerstin Lohse. I'm Director of Communications at Merix, And I'm happy to host this evening together with Frank Pieke, the Director and CEO of Merix. And this is Jörg Wutke, who is the man who never sleeps, who always seems to be online, and who is constantly traveling back and forth between Beijing, Berlin, Brussels, and he just came back from Washington last weekend and using the flight time for his second passion to be a bookworm. So if you follow him on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, then you will get really valuable tips for reading. So you better start doing that. So, uh, Jörg Wutke, um, to my right-hand side, is the vice president and uh, chief representative of BASAV in China for more than already 22 years, which is quite an amazing feat. I, I think I know very few people have actually worked in China for that long. Uh, he's also a founding member and president, I should say, of the European Chamber of Commerce for six years, and evil tongues have wagged saying that he's running again. Uh, that's, um, <laughs> that's a threat, right? <laughs> he also served uh, for several years as the chairman of the Business and Industry Advisory Committee of the OECD's China Task Force. Interesting job, I would think. Um, but before that, he was the founding member of the German uh, Chamber of Commerce in Beijing and uh, served as chairman of the board from 2001 to 2004. Um, as a highly decorated man, he received the Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, if my French is good enough, by, the pres by President Macron, uh, the order of Italian start from the Italian President Mattarella, and earlier this year, I have to read this out because it's so complicated. Earlier this year, he received the Bundesverdienstkreuz from President Steinmeier. So that's a pretty interesting lineup of people. Um, but most importantly, just last week, Jörg received the Leifung of Lobbying Award uh, in, in from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce due to his, and this is a quote, his tireless, selfless efforts in years of lobbying for better market access for foreign business in China. But the most important thing that Jörg Wutke does with his days is being a member of the advisory bureau board of Merix, which he has done from the very, very beginning, for which we are extremely grateful and continue to be grateful. <laughs> Kirsten. Yeah, Frank mentioned already, um, Jörg Wutke is running for president again for his third term. Actually, I remember quite some criticism last year when the NPC in Beijing made it possible that uh, there could be a third term for President Xi Jinping. <laughs> so you have two minutes to explain to us why you should serve a third term and he shouldn't. <laughs> again, uh, I had a cooling phase uh, twice uh, and... Uh, this is again a limited term, so I'm not replicating Xi Jinping. I'm replicating you do it the Russian model, back and mm. forth between president and premier. <laughs> that's right. I was thinking, yes, that's true. But I, at the same time, uh, Putin only came back once. 
uh, I come back twice. Uh, this is something that Deng Xiaoping achieved at one stage. So I follow the uh, Deng Xiaoping model. The whole purpose of actually running again was not an easy decision because how can you make sure the third term is as good as one and two? And on top of it, I have small children. That was a real drag on my decision making. At the same time, the chamber fell silent. And as Frank uh, rightfully put out, I have left no uh, sin uncommitted in China. I, I founded this baby, and hence I feel very much like it has lost its direction. And so that's why, with lots of uh, goodwill from lots of officials, and uh, I, I do it again. That doesn't mean I get elected, by the way. But if so, if you compare the situation 12 years ago when you became the president for the first time and today, what are the biggest differences between then and now from the European and from the Chinese side? Well, we founded the chamber because it was uh, a time when Pascal Lamy came to Beijing and negotiated WTO. And he says, I don't want to meet the Spanish, British, German, French. I want to meet petrochemicals. I want to meet the accountants, finance, and so forth. And we thought that's a cool thing, actually. When we sat around the table briefing him on, on what we can do better in China. So hence, we, uh, because of his initiative, we founded the chamber. And I think it's, it's a wonderful model where actually beyond nations in, in the region, you, uh, you formulate your lobbying, lobbying needs. Um, then we came out of the Zhongji days, where basically uh, change in China was possible, was discussed, and uh, the experience was that China can do better and uh, we can grow with China. And then uh, in my first presidency, I realized that this kind of uh, uh, drive uh, to bring China forward uh, stalled or even was reversed. So uh, when I got president first time, 2007, that was four years after Zhongji left office, and there was a sense of complacency in China. And for those, like myself in business in China, that are on the ground, actually, yeah, okay, I mean, it's too bad, there's more potential, but I'm actually doing okay. Uh, but there was a lot of potential we saw, and we came out of this phase with Zhu Ji where we thought, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to change China. So in a way, ever since, I must say, I, I feel a bit depressed about this kind of promises uh, and not delivery. Ken Chema called it promise fatigue. Um, and uh, that's why I think now is the time uh, to step up to the plate because I sense uh, changes in the air. Okay, that sounds quite positive. Yes, this <laughs> is. Um, I have an important question for you as a non-German in this room. <laughs> you currently represent Europe in the European Chamber of Commerce. Um, but how do you deal with the fact that Europe is, when it looks at China, I would say increasingly less of a unit. China is playing Eastern Europe apart from Western Europe, Southern Europe apart from Northern Europe, and so on and so forth. So do you also feel that this has an impact on the work that you do in the European Chamber of Commerce and that you perhaps can do? How do you balance these interests that seem to be drifting in different directions? Um, a different question. First of all, the good news is the European Chamber is one voice. Uh, we have nine chapters. Uh, we are really united, which, which you can't normally expect from European organizations. Um, uh, the, the second is that uh, uh, we always struggled with having a European voice. In particular, uh, as many of our members, 1,600 members, go through a lot of localization. And uh, so hence, you have in a lot of these members PRC nationals, 
uh, totally fulfilling uh, their, the interests of their companies, but to get them into the mood of actually believing that change can happen and change can happen vocally uh, was a hard feat, I must say, at that time, to get everyone behind yourself, because you can't just go out and make statements. You have to have the companies behind you, and the companies increasingly are run by PRC nationals that do not have this European DNA that you would normally like to have in the trenches. Um, so this, this was one thing where a lot of convincing and, and arguments, uh, and, and they had to see sense in the chamber to say, yeah, that's good for my Finnish, for my Belgium, for my Polish company, you know, to get this yeah, very difficult. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, China is slicing and dicing Europe. And I always felt like you can't sh stop that. If the Poles, the Slovenians, the Estonians feel like underappreciated by the Chinese, so they pull them in order to match the kind of appearance that Cameron or Hollande or Merkel get, so be it, you know. Um, and let them go through the Chinese mechanism of promises, no delivery. I mean, uh, again, most of these countries had a very different expectation on 16 plus 1. They didn't want money. They said, in many cases, I met these trade ministers, I get enough cheap money from Brussels. I want market opening. You know, for the Poles, for example, the Russians have stopped eating Polish apple because of the sanctions. Hence, they have apples coming out of their ears. And so they want to have the Chinese eat apples, obviously. So Xi Jinping goes to Warsaw, he gets an apple, he eats the apple, and of course, the apple export of that particular brand, of that particular orchard, uh, rockets up, really. Nothing else. So there's increasingly a huge frustration among many of these 16 uh, uh, to say, you know, we expected market opening, but still with my strawberries, my beef, my whatnot. And these are not high-tech things. Uh, the high-tech things in some of the countries actually go into German equipment called a Porsche and then gets exported as made in Germany, by the way. So uh, I would say just, just uh, try to help these companies to establish uh, and if they do 16 plus 1, time will take care of that. I'm not worried. I simply still don't believe why uh, Greece is joining. Um, and I can see that maybe we're back to 16 plus 1 soon if Poland is leaving. All right. On to uh, the perception of China in uh, European eyes. And particularly, I would say, European eyes in China itself. So because that's, that's what you are, that's what you do. Um, do you perceive that uh, long-term residents, or not so long-term residents, in China, who do business in China, are beginning to look at China slightly less naively, perhaps? Uh, not the, the, the promised land, as it were, but looking also at the downside? Or has that always been there, uh, and that the perspective, the, the perspective that people have of China hasn't really shifted as much as it has, perhaps, in Europe itself? Um, well, if you're married to a Chinese lady, you better have an optimistic opinion on China, I tell you. Um, second, uh, uh, people, many different ways, people that live a long time in China, uh, and work in China, and as, as they work long time, possibly they are successful, um, uh, have a different way of thinking. Uh, because it's not a logical strain that we sometimes follow. We, by experience, uh, not necessarily by knowledge, all of a sudden have a holistic view on decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we see the dots around the problem, whereas many of the guys that came new see just the logic, there's one straight line and want to solve it like this. Mm -hmm. And we, in, in uh, the long-staying guys, all of a sudden think in a way Chinese, but try to maintain the Western logic thinking in order to explain it to our head offices that this has to be done. It's, it's quite something that I noticed among many of my peers that have been there for a long time that they managed to communicate holistic to linear decision-making uh, back home that makes them uh, successful. 
the, the second observation is uh, we are not that surprised anymore in many ways. Uh, because uh, if you're new in China, you see a snapshot. That's China. Woo, this is China. And if you have been in China for a long time, then you see the video. Then all of a sudden you see that actually developments take place, meaning that you also anticipate developments and not just extrapolate developments. If you have a snapshot, you extrapolate. And so in a way, I, I guess that the skills those people have, and actually it's not many actually, um, is uh, that uh, they feel at home in both cultures and uh, uh, feel like uh, they have, an, uh, in my case, uh, not married to a Chinese national, uh, I, I feel an obligation to be engaged with China. I, I, I socialized in the Junji days when everything was sort of going like China can do better, engage and, and do something, and I never lost this trait. So the way I think what it does is you have a personal stake in that country. What is your impression? Do the Chinese understand why Europe's perception of China changed recently? Well, the average question I get from Chinese TV and radio and newspapers is always, what's wrong with Europe? Uh, so, <laughs> not really. We don't uh, know. <laughs> because we used to be such a pushover and easy and, you know, unlike the Americans, predictable in good ways also, uh, that they sort of feel like, you know, what happened? Uh, investment screening and more dumping cases and this, this kind of thing. I, I think uh, a Chinese official that lists economy as quoted recently, America changed because China changed. And to me, Europe changed because China changed um, and became more assertive, uh, more um, uh, aggressive in many ways that it was unusual for all of us. Um, I mean, you change your pattern when uh, life changes. I mean, you, it was a one linear story. We export to China, they export to us, okay. We invest in China, no export, no, no investment. Uh, and then all of a sudden the ratio was five to one. Five times more investment in Europe than European investment in China. Wow. And then, you know, it's not just us putting up greenfield operations, creating new jobs. China bought into existing operations, buying into jobs, which in many cases is a very good thing. But at the same time, it felt like, how come these guys can do it, but I can't do this in China? And then the reciprocity discussion came up where I feel like, yo, now this is not really fair. So in a way, the, the discussion changed because all of a sudden you didn't just have Chinese companies competing against you in China, you had them competing against you in the backyard, but with the same toolbox of subsidies and, and cutting corners that we, we ask for investment screening. So again, uh, good stories out there, Volvo Chile puts Meister Sunny and so forth. At the same time, uh, you know, we had... Uh, a lot of uh, stuff uh, where we say, you know, this is uh, bringing state enterprises back to Germany in many cases. Okay. I want to f shift attention a little bit to what happens here in Europe. Our um, Minister of Economic Affairs, Peter Altmaier, has uh, announced a policy which you could only term, well, he terms it also industrial policy in an explicit reaction to China's perceived or real industrial policy. What do you think of that? Is it a right thing to do or a wrong thing to do uh, to copy that part of the Chinese model that you think is the most dangerous to us? I mean, Altmaier was possibly thinking, you know, Chinese are so damn successful, they have, you know, a six, seven, eight percent growth, why not copying them, you know? We had this, point. We yeah. had this notion of Handel durch Wandel, uh, but we possibly misunderstood that actually they change us. Yeah, yeah, sure. uh, so we thought they changed them. It's, uh, um, so I guess that uh, what made him think about this is, first of all, 
um, that we have to safeguard certain industries. Because what we have seen in certain areas, based on the Made in China 2025 uh, uh, report that we did and so forth, is that China buys strategically into assets where normally maybe it would not be a business decision, uh, but a political commitment. So we felt like strongly we have to do some industrial policy to prevent this, uh, because we went through decades of privatization and now we get back to state-owned enterprises, but this time it's in other countries. Um, so there was a strong notion of like, you know, if, if uh, my company competes against a Chinese company for a Swiss asset, then uh, the best may win. Yeah, but the problem is a publicly listed company or private European enterprise can never, ever, ever win against uh, state capitalism. We cannot. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I guess the awareness is this happened with KUKA, this happened with other cases where we felt like enough is enough and we have to safeguard industries. That being said, there have been plenty of great decisions by Chinese entrepreneurs actually against Beijing's wish, such as Chile Volvo, such as Putzmeister Sani, where they said, don't do this. They did it and it turns out to be a success story. So what we are saying is there's a genuine interest in China, there are genuine entrepreneurial talents that can make the needle uh, move and swing it in the right direction that should be encouraged. But when these kind of state enterprises show up at the doorstep, we should at last ask for an ID identification. Okay. So we should copy elements of the Chinese model but be very selective about it and also don't operate on the basis of a stereotype, perhaps, of what happens in China. Yeah. Is that yeah, it, it, it also what we can learn from China is that they managed to create a demand story that gives companies the certainty of, you know, I'm going to be big, I, I, can, I can do this, you know. Uh, sometimes, of course, uh, the DNA of the economies there is still, um, as in the overcapacity start of the chamber, leading to overcapacities. But at the same time, uh, we should learn from China by creating European demand. We still believe it or not, have 28 member states, everybody has his own demand story. And with 5G, you have to have a European approach to this one. You have 500 million people under your belt that actually you sort of say, okay, I give Ericsson and Nokia a good shot, I make sure that Huawei only shows up at the doorstep when it has no subsidies, uh, can prove it has no subsidies, and then sort of maybe ask Huawei, Chinese model, to invest in Europe and then compete within Europe, which is fair enough and not export out of Shenzhen, and then let's see what we can do and have a European sort of, you know, demand story. And we don't. We don't. We, we have 50 million here, we have 20 million there, uh, and hence uh, we lose ourselves in all kinds of different schemes, which is greatly unfortunate. Battery, for example. I mean, we completely dropped the ball, even though we have the best car industry in the world, uh, because we didn't have a demand story, because our way of driving is different. We drive longer distances, uh, Chinese short distances. The Chinese have more environmental problems than we, and bang, they go down this road. But there should be this kind of guys wake up. Uh, this is my this is my demand. I give you this tax break. I do all of this in order to create this. So I guess we should we should uh, uh, possibly create demand stories, industry and, and visions. You know what we what we really need is someone telling us. You know this is going to be costly. Uh, this is going to break our budget maybe and it's going to kill lives, it's going to be difficult, but we put the man on the moon in this decade. You don't have that spirit today, that you actually get a vision and then everyone lines behind it and they know it's damn difficult, maybe it's impossible. And all of a sudden what you get, I myself in my company, nanotechnology, biotechnology, is like, oh, there's a risk, oh, we should not do this. So all of a sudden, in, instead of going forward and thought, okay, I can fail, 
all of a sudden, you, you, I will not fail because there's a risk, so I don't even start. Yeah, but isn't there then a risk that we start putting a lot of money into sort of say existing industries or existing products and not preparing the European economies for the next cycle of product, the next cycle of innovation? Because my uh, feeling about state intervention is always that people are really good at solving yesterday's problems, but they don't know what tomorrow's problems are going to be because nobody does. So you, I think you should leave that to the market. And if there's one thing wrong about the Chinese model is that they're putting too much money into old things, and that cost them is also costing them dearly. Well, actually, there's not just one Chinese model. There is the Chinese model of uh, subsidies, big demand story, keep the foreigners out, give them a little sledge, have technology transfer, and then sort of get from nowhere to solar panels 100% globally in no time. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden you have overcapacity and you kill yourself. Mm -hmm. You have, uh, I don't know how many hundred in every province and no one goes bankrupt, of course. And then all of a sudden, same in wind, uh, you have a solution, you have subsidized it and you are just blessing the world with cheap solar panels and wind turbines. So, I mean, this is a also Chinese model. So in a way, yes, they own the technology, but all of a sudden we all benefit from this and we moved on. And then at the same time, they create these demand stories. I mean, they say, you know, the, st the street is blocked uh, for normal cars. You don't get a car plate. Only a mm -hmm. electric car gets the car plate in Beijing. Then all my neighbors have electric cars, mm -hmm. you know. And then uh, they, they all of a sudden they create this demand that they say, you know, you only get this sledge of the market and everybody runs that this way. Um, uh, and then the third is, of course, you get the subsidy junkies. Uh, where you say, you know, uh, if you produce something that looks like an e-vehicle and maybe it sounds like an e-vehicle, might not even drive like one, but you get subsidies going. And that's what Li Keqiang has been, has been realizing over the last six months, particularly after he visited Japan and talked to Toyota and Abe and realized how far the Chi Japanese have come without any subsidies. Uh, he had a nervous breakdown early and, and went back and said, guys, you know, uh, I think better better stop uh, putting steroids in the system. So the Chinese are brilliant in creating a, a demand story, um, and uh, so we have to we have to we have to really get better. So the BDI paper is brilliant, I think, because it says we cannot change China, but we can change us. So let's get going. Again, returning to the issue of foreign investments in China. To what extent do you think China still needs foreign investment? And if so, why and how? Because one of the things that I read, uh, and I don't know if that is true, is that actually a very large slice of foreign investment that is counted as foreign investment in China is actually recycled foreign profits. So it's money made in China by foreign companies, foreign investment companies, that cannot be exported or taken out of the country, repatriated, and has to be recycled and reinvested in China itself. So that to me points to the fact that actually China has moved beyond the need for foreign investment. Or am I having it completely wrong? Well, they just do it clever. Well, that I'm asking also <laughs> somebody who is now heading up a $10 billion uh, foreign investment. So uh, I, I think I can guess what the answer is, but I want to hear it. Okay. I, um, you know, uh, first of all, when you look at the foreign direct investment data, a third of that is Chinese money going to British Virgin Islands, Samoa, and other places and comes back again. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it, that's the return money that takes place. So the heavy weight in investment in China is British Virgin Islands, by the way. So, you know, us, meaning Europeans, Americans, Japanese, hardly ever get beyond 11, 12, 15 billion dollars a year. 
I mean, then you have a spike, of course, when, when someone like us puts 10 billion on the table, but this is unusual. Uh, and, and so you, we actually are not even a niche player. We are a niche of a niche player. Uh, and, and so uh, we are in the relevant areas uh, where the Chinese let us play. Uh, and that's where they need us, and that's where they open it up. For example, this, this $10 billion we signed in July last year in Guangdong, uh, it's in Guangdong, we signed in Berlin. That was clearly because, first of all, China has realized CTE. Uh, the Americans managed to kill a company over the weekend by withholding the semiconductors. And uh, they realized, oh boy, maybe I don't need a supply chain coming into China. And maybe it's not enough time to actually get there where the Americans are. Possibly we'll never get there. Uh, so ask, ask foreign companies to invest within the Great Wall of China. So I have the supply chain in-house, so to speak. Um, so SETI was a wake-up call. Second, um, you know, why should, why should Wutke waste four years of his valuable life sitting with Sarnopec negotiating a joint venture? Mm -hmm. You know, my wife asks that question all the time. So the Chinese say, you know, uh, do it now. Invest. 100%, I want your products soon and fast in order to get my technology leap forward, in particular in Guangdong. So in a way, they need us and they realize, forget about all this kind of equity, who owns it, but actually who produces what. And, and so there's a real shift away, uh, also with the awareness that you know, after years of being, uh, having many concubines, like BP, ExxonMobil, Shell, and, and BSF, Sandopec and CNOC really did not get that smart on chemistry. So just you know, forget about it, let those guys do it. ExxonMobil got also a $10 billion project. So I think there is a, it could be maybe instilled by Liu He, there's awareness, it's like, oh, forget about this. We, we better be fast. And then I guess uh, there is this awareness in Shenyang, where Harald is from, and, and uh, uh, we have our former council general here, Peter Kreuzberger. Um, Shenyang has, has a miserable, depressive uh, economic environment, really bad. Um, still the chamber's there. Um, and, um, but we have success stories. We have Michelin, we have BMW, us of course, and, and others. So in a way, when BMW is just still standing and selling double digit while all the others falter, they want to expand, rightfully so. And then China says, would you please expand, possibly because they're the last taxpayer in Leoning. Um, and then they say, we would love to, but our partner Brilliance is having you know, no cash. Uh, and then uh, Leoning says, okay, man, come on, buy them out, just do it. So in a way, I think they have realized in some areas they need foreigners and there are uh, more uh, possibilities for us. We, we just have to break out of this mold that hinders us to think about 100%. We are so instilled in this old model. But Jörg, if you currently talk to people in Brussels um, on China and the situation of the market access for foreigners, they always quote these examples. BMW and the recent 100% uh, permission to build up a new 100% ownership model and BASF, of course, the 10 billion project is, which is coming up in Guangdong. Are these really good examples for opening up or is it just because, as you explained, China needs especially this expertise or the supply chain or China needs an investor in a really poor province like, like Liaoning? Yeah. Well, better to have good examples than no examples, sure. uh, first of <laughs> all. Uh, second, uh, again, uh, uh, the fact that ExxonMobil puts 10 billion on the ground indicates that it's not just us that's trying to be smart. 
Um, I, I guess that many of my peers haven't realized that there is a shift in thinking caused by a new administration, particularly Liu He, uh, and secondly, by the American threat of uh, containing technology from China. Uh, so I guess that they want to move fast and they want to be enticing. Uh, they come up with things that they believe it makes us totally excited, like the foreign investment law is absolute not exciting at all. Uh, so for us, what matters is independence and market access, meaning we can do our own thing. Um, the second is, I, I guess, why the market is going to be more prosperous and better than before is there's a new generation of demand story coming up in China. It used to be, you know, if it's chapodor, it's needy, looks like this, then, you know, it's good enough. Um, and now you have demanding urban middle class that says, good enough is not good enough. I want the real thing. And I want the healthy thing. I don't want my kids licking a toy which has red color and it has cadmium in there. I want the kid to play with the toy and I don't have to worry about this. Uh, I want fresh air. I want this. I want that. And there's a real shift. And it's getting, in particular, in a very demanding structure. 25-year-old to 35, 40 years old are totally different consumers than 35 to 50 years old, let alone the above. And we still focus on this kind of, oh, it has to be Chinese brand, has to be cheap. It's not true. So consumer consumption, diversification, differentiation, you want to really have your product look different to the point where every car should be maybe different at one stage. Just imagine if you actually, as a company, can fulfill this in a reasonable cost structure and time, how much business you get. Uh, it used to be the black, beam, uh, black Audi A6. Everybody had the same thing. Chinese are sick of this. They want a differentiated car. So, and then the third is people are sick of pollution. So they want actually companies uh, to actually not just have a water treatment plant to actually run it, uh, not just to have a filter in the chimney, but actually use it. And, and so that brings our Chinese competitors in the same cost structure in investment as well as in operations. And that is a huge advantage. We had an unlevel playing field against people that were cutting corners. These days are over. Um, but aren't you saying then with this that um, there may be in terms of customer demand or consumer demand be more of a level playing field in China for foreign and Chinese companies. But th does that then mean that the, the wonderful days of the China market are over? The sky is no longer the limit and foreign investors and European investors should perhaps no longer be looking at China so much but really be looking at other uh, emerging markets. Is that what you're saying or are you saying now there's still plenty of opportunity there if you know how to compete in the right way in this very competitive, cutting-edge market. market. Yeah, the problem is there is no second China, no third China. It's just China. 60% um, uh, of chemical growth for this year and the next years to come is China. 60%. I mean, <laughs> I think uh, uh, India is nowhere to be seen on the radar. It's coming, but not in my lifetime. And so uh, uh, it is something where um, you really have to see what kind of... I mean, 1.4 billion people... Uh, where the middle class is growing, become more uh, sensitive towards pollution and more demand-driven. They want to have differentiated products. I mean, hey, uh, you better struggle this, because if a Chinese company figures it out, they come to your market mm -hmm. and, and sell. And I mean, already now, if you look into uh, products uh, flows, you know, the Chinese are selling a billion euro every day to Europe, and we sell 500 million euro every day to China. So in a way, they have figured it out twice better than us what the product should be. So actually, we are not on the hill. We are actually in the valley. Um, and uh, so in a way, it's, it's really a wake-up call for us uh, to see 
that um, it's not just industrial policy that got them there. Uh, it is also a highly demanding, uh, fast-changing customer. Uh, if this is not good enough today, I you know leave it tomorrow. Our products have a long life here, really long life. Um, in, in, in China, the average buyer of Mercedes-Benz is 35, and he's not going to drive it more than three years. Here it is 56, and you take it to your grave, basically. So uh, uh, I, you drive it in there. You <laughs> might shorten that process. So in a way, it's, it's, it's a totally different market size. And we actually, by, by learning how fast decisions are being taken, it is only beneficial for companies to learn from this. That's why it's good to be there. And that's why important there should be more European companies, hence the market opening discussion. Maybe we just stay for a second at the chemical industry. I mean, you are representing the world's biggest chemical company, and your Chinese competitors really experienced a hard time recently. I mean, it started with Tianjin, with the huge accident there some years ago, and these cases continued. So what is the result of it? Yeah, I, I can only say, Berlin, fasten your seatbelt, uh, <laughs> because China is getting active on the environmental front, because that means that over the last years, they have shut down about between 10 and 20% of ke all chemical sites in China. Um, and uh, that has a bit of rupture, and you still sort of, as, as it's a reasonable speak, can rearrange your supplies chain. And in us, it's like, I buy from him, I produce, I pass on to him, and at the end, a, a toy comes out. Um, but uh, in many ways, this recent explosion in Yanchang is a game changer. Uh, Yanchang blew up, um, and 79 people died. And uh, it was a precursor pesticide selling, in that case, to Dow and DuPont. So now Dow and DuPont have to look for a different supplier, obviously. But they closed down the whole chemical park there because it's typical Chinese party thing. Uh, Xi Jinping was in Paris. 30, 79 people died while he was in Paris. He got a fit. He told one more of those, and you're finished in your job. And for a party secretary, that's bad news. So in a way, you know, panic was breaking hours in like... You know, my company had to give training lectures and so forth. But also, of course, if you're part of Jiangsu, it says, I lose my job as one of those damn guys goes up again. How many are insecure? And then his staff says, well, we have 4,500. Let's assume 3,500 are not good. It says, oh boy, you know, this is a lot. And so I lose my job. So they made a decision in Jiangsu on Fool's Day of all days uh, to cut down within a year from 4,500 to 2,000. And in the two years after, from 2,000 to 1,000. So within a very short time, Chinese style, 80% of the chemical industry will be wiped out. It doesn't affect us as a production unit. We possibly have less competitors. We might have less customers. And for you, interesting is you might have less suppliers. Because those guys produce very cheap, very effective precursors for the pesticide industry and the pharmaceutical industry. And then all of a sudden, you have none of that anymore. Uh, in a very short time, where do you find subsidy, uh, substitutes? That means that you look in other provinces. But then, of course, if you're a reasonable company, you say, you know, the guy panicked in Jiangsu. How sure can I be he doesn't panic in Shandong or in Zhejiang? Maybe not. So in many of my colleagues' discussions in Beijing is on this kind of ingredients, anything but China, supply chain. I really had to get out of China. Um, and, uh, of course, if you have uh, 3,500 companies less that do these kind of precursors, guess what the others in, around the world are doing uh, to do you a favor? Uh, they increase the prices tremendously. So, so we are desperately trying to tell 
the Jiangsu government with the help of the Chemical Association of China, that this kind of closing has massive implications for the pharmaceutical uh, industries as well as for the, for the farmers around the world uh, as they might all of a sudden face uh, shortages. So there is China matters and it matters so fast and so big. Um, I want to, if with permission from the chair, um, <laughs> to sure. turn a little bit to the issues of trade war and U.S.-China-EU uh, relationships. Um, there are many questions I can ask, um, but I would like to start with uh, the common observation, which is an observation but not necessarily true, that uh, the U.S. Mm -hmm. sanctions against China are to Europe's benefit, actually. Uh, do you agree with that? Do you think no? The interconnectedness of these three major economic places is such that whatever one does harms all the, all the others. Well, that might sound cynical, but the trade uh, war between U.S. and China has been wonderful for Germany. Uh, because uh, when um, uh, Trump launched this uh, uh, 10, 25% on a batch of 40 to $50 billion of Chinese products, mostly high-tech and technologies, Guess who lost 3% market share and guess who won 2% market share in the United States. So as a matter of fact, because the U.S. Uh, needed that stuff, they turned again from Chinese suppliers to German suppliers. So in many ways, the machinery industry actually you know, made quite some money out of this. For all of us, of course, the trade war is horrible. <clears throat> and for my own company, because my customers that produce toys, electronics, uh, textiles, and shoes and whatnot, uh, they panicked, for example, in the fall of last year, um, and uh, they stopped ordering because they were not sure if I put it on the boat, get it to Long Beach, do I get it into the United States before 31st of December. So all of a sudden, in the chemical industry, we fell off the cliff uh, uh, by double digit, big double digit. And it came back after Buenos Aires because they saw that maybe there's a solution and we're sort of creeping back. But all of a sudden, it's also the perception that withholds investment, and the perception that I might not get that stuff in. So I don't know what people are now doing that Trump says on Friday, I'm going to pull the plug, you know. Are we then going to see that these guys stop buying from me again? Because they say, you know, I can't get my shoes into America. And I, you know, I can't ask the Germans to have more than two shoes, maybe. And uh, stuff like this. So, so in a way, uh, irritation in the market is horrible. Uh, for us. So there are winners, but mostly there are losers. I mean, again, on soya beans, uh, the big winner is Brazil. Uh, the big loser is the United States. Um, and uh, for companies that sell stuff to those producers, in a way, it's a zero-sum game. You know, you lose there, you win there in many ways. And then, of course, investment decisions make life very difficult. If, if the car industry finds out they cannot sell from the U.S. to China anymore, of course they draw up plans to build in South Africa. Okay, so it, you, you're saying that the U.S., or actually Trump, is vastly underestimating the seriousness of the interconnectedness of the world. Basically, he thinks that he can repatriate all supply chains back to the United States, but that is a figment of his own imagination. Um, or do you think that actually he may have a point and the U.S. may be able to do this uh, in that sense, perhaps being different from European economies that are much more open? I mean, I guess that his apparatus is much more smarter than himself, but the problem, he's the boss. So uh, in many ways, I don't think he, he thinks outside the box uh, and outside the White House. He doesn't even understand supply chains because he was a real estate manager. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, 
so for him, uh, it's like bringing jobs back. Um, but the first thing we see is uh, that many are dislocating from the U.S. to other places and, and put money elsewhere because they are worried about the supply chains. Mexico is the big winner at this stage. Uh, as American companies are uh, drawing a lot of sources from Mexico because they're not sure about the Chinese uh, uh, situation, about uh, import tariffs and so forth. So Mexico is definitely a big-time winner on this one. What he's thinking, I guess, is that uh, I want to bring jobs back and I want the share price to look good. You know, His whole KPI is share price, possibly because of his own you know, portfolio. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, and the interesting thing about the share price, if you listen to BlackRock and Goldman Sachs, is as long and as anticipation of a trade deal is going on, stock market goes up. Mm -hmm. If there would be a trade mark, if there would be a trade deal, then the market would go down because then you know the emperor has no clothes; they would actually see what they're signing up with. Mm -hmm. So, for him to extend this thing is very, very good policy. And in order not to have a concluded deal, to look like I'm the tough guy. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure actually he wants a deal, mm -hmm. because the best for him is not to have a deal in many ways. Also, it gives him handy arguments in the, in the lineup for the uh, election campaign. Uh, bashing China is extremely popular. Uh, the only bipartisan thing that, that you know, is working in the U.S. right now, unfortunately. Uh, so, uh, you know, the economy is doing well. Uh, the Chinese look stressed out. Uh, the stock market goes up and goes down for, you know, will go up again. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he's going to get reelected, and we're in for another four years of uh, roller coaster. Right. And the Chinese are getting the American, America still wrong, right? They still don't quite understand what's going on. Yes. Um, Who does? Who does get America now? Quite. Um, but another point I have is, again, about Europe, because... Again, an argument not so much at the, uh, at the economic level, but more at the political level, is that um, with uh, this trade war and conflict between the, the U.S. and China, that Europe has to become more important for China as a political player also. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that uh, when you look at this from Beijing, that the Chinese are still completely obsessed with their relationship with the U.S. and really have no time for Europe at all, although it might be the smart thing for them to do. I, I must say that, uh, of course, they're obsessed with the U.S. The U.S. is their biggest market. They are the only international strategic opponent, and uh, the U.S. has been acting weirdly, uh, and uh, the Chinese anyhow have an eye on the U.S. So um, uh, it, was, it, it is a real domestic policy issue for Xi Jinping. He went to Mar-a-Lago in April 17 and says, no problem with the U.S., and uh, a thousand opportunities, no problem. A year later, he has a trade war. So, of course, in the corridors of Beijing, the elite was asking, what's wrong with our president? He didn't see it coming. And then you have Mr. America in the top leadership called Wang Jishan, and, uh, because he always meets uh, top American officials, just as John Thornton and... Uh, and uh, Ang Paulson and the others, and he talks 95% of the time. So he's a real expert on America, uh, talks to the same guys, has the same opinion, and, and so forth. He didn't get it. So that puts strain between the two of them. So, uh, so the problem really is uh, that uh, Liu He gets it. I, I'm absolutely sure that he gets what America wants, because frankly, he wants the same. He wants China to transform. He wants China to reform during G2.0 in a way. And he doesn't know how to sell it because that would mean we're caving into Donald Trump, which is you can't sell in domestic policies. So in a way, I guess what they're trying to do now in Beijing, the guys around Liu He, is 
this is big noise with the Americans. We, we cannot control Donald Trump. No one can, not even his own administration can. So let's sort of use this kind of thing and put out reform steps that makes any change in accommodation to American demands look reasonable and fitting. Meaning it's not just no reform, no reform, and then boom, big reform, courtesy to Trump, and then no reform again. This is politically impossible. So you have small reform for an investment law, you have this opening up BSF, you have this BMW, and this kind of thing, and then you know Trump has this thing on opening up and insurance and foreign and whatnot, and then we do some more steps afterwards. So I think the narrative that Liocha is trying to build up is like, hey guys in Jungle High, we need reform. I mean, no kidding. And uh, hence, you know, we have this noise level out there. Just forget about it. What does he say? What does he tell us? And so I guess that they are trying to accommodate uh, this, uh, but it's certainly politically dicey uh, for him to do so, and you might have occasional setbacks like Friday. But um, I think uh, uh, they will use this kind of noise level to actually try in small steps to change the system because there's no other reason but they badly need it. So who is the decision maker in this trade war on the Chinese side? Well, Donald Trump. <sighs> I mean, you can go this way, that way. He decides to tweet. He has a, he has a diarrhea. Then he no, does I mean it differently. No, I'm not the Chinese side. Is this Liu He? Is it Wang Qishan or is it Xi no, Jinping? No, Wang Qishan is out of the picture totally. Um, it's um, Xi Jinping first and foremost. Uh, he has to look into all his constituencies. Uh, the Americans ask for SOE reform. He sort of believes in SOEs because of uh, stability reasons and political control reasons. Liu He does not believe in SOEs. You can read this in China 2030. And, but he has just this thing with his boss who wants SOEs. So you have to see how much uh, of SOE reform you can get, dividend payments, uh, different uh, corporate structure, and so forth and so forth. I, I guess the eventual decision maker is Xi Jinping after he has asked his constituencies, whoever that is, um, and uh, he is not the one-man show that is projected in the newspapers, even Chinese newspapers. Um, Liu He has an important position. There are others that are more careful and cautious. Um, I guess it's in many ways more of a teamwork kind of how much can we do um, with Xi Jinping being the chairman in the swing vote. So he will be the one who will be blamed Event. if it... Goes well, wrong I mean, again. Xi Jinping was, was going out there and he looked bad. I mean, this like, you know, no problem with the U.S. and then a year later he gets whacked mm. around by Trump. That didn't sell well in Beijing. Mm. Um, and uh, so for him then to see how he can actually put the blame on some of his staff and some of others is dicey, but very good. So, uh, you know, he held this speech in January where he said, risk, 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 risk. So in a way, he's now in a position to say, I told you so. You know, isn't there a risk? Isn't that a problem? So in a way, he's trying to sort of get out of this corner of having misjudged Trump in order to be in a position where he cannot be blamed. Uh, Trump is his nightmare. So, Jörg, you are called the Leifung of the lobbyism, and you are pursuing a government affairs, or it's often called public affairs here in Berlin. It's a new discipline in a way. You work on that for many, many years, for decades. Would you say that an anti-corruption campaign by Xi Jinping makes life easier of lobbyists or more difficult? Uh, first of all, it makes it easier because actually you get uh, uh, you don't get these meetings in dark places, uh, not BSF, but other companies that have government uh, contracts 
um, and uh, you get more level playing field to some extent there, yes. So in many ways, even the baker in Germany, uh, the German baker in Beijing says, you know, it used to be the police and the uh, supervisors come in, take the bread and leave. Now they put cash on the tech counter. Um, the, the second is that um, the corruption campaign has caused massive resentment in the files and ranks of the elite. Again, 500,000 get arrested every year, and, and the public opinion is very positive for the corruption campaign. But Xi Jinping arrested 100,000 top officials over the last seven years. And a friend of mine who lives in Zhongnanhai said to me, you know, just imagine, it's, it's 100 relatives, friends, and former colleagues that care about this one person. Um, and uh, so they have a personal grudge against the president. 10 million people have a personal grudge against the president of China. Uh, so, you know, and it's not the farmer in Hunan, it's the elite that sits in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, uh, and so forth. To give you an example, two of the last energy ministers in prison, three out of four Sanopec CEOs in prison, two out of four PetroChina bosses in prison, Sanochem guys in prison. I mean, in my, it looked like a slaughterhouse. Um, so in a way, uh, he has created, uh, I wouldn't say a group ready for a little coup d'etat, but definitely they wouldn't cry if he slips. The third is that uh, we have seen uh, massive mistakes in the administration um, because of the corruption campaign, meaning that uh, the best people realize in government, I can't earn on the side anymore. I have to go to the stupid policy sessions. And third, fourth plenum, I have to be held responsible for my actions until the rest of my days. I'm, I'm going to leave this thing and then go into private business. So we have seen a massive brain drain in all the relevant uh, ministries and, and localities, which then leads to what a former Chinese minister said to me, you cannot expect first-rate policy from third-rate people. So get used to it. Get used to the mistakes. So what does it mean for you? I mean, government affairs about contacts, about networks, about long-term relationships, and now three or four are gone? Yeah, I mean, first of all, personally, uh, I'm having a real stressful time because I have all these guys shaking my CEO's hands, hanging in a picture in my office. And uh, I have to take them down. So I'm running out of <laughs> pictures because we have been shaking hands of criminals for many, many years. And uh, so it doesn't look smug. And, uh, and it's really, you have to be up to date, you know. It's so, so, I mean, it's a personal challenge for me, of course. Um, then, uh, I mean, we published a book, 30 Years of BSF in China, and then, you know, the Chinese version, a week before the print run, they said to us, take the pictures out, all the pictures, except the Chinese ambassador. We said, are you kidding me? And, and so we had to take all the pictures out of all the, the uh, Chinese officials in there. And then, sure enough, we launched the book, happy, happy. And then in April, uh, you know, the Sanopec president was arrested. He was one of the pictures. Then the party secretary of Jiangsu was arrested. He was in one of the pictures. Then the mayor of Nanjing was arrested, also on the pictures. So you go through this book like, my God, who's next? You know, and <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it is just, it's just shocking. And it, you must imagine the fear in the ranks of these people. Sinopec now goes through the third round of anti-corruption investigation. Third round, PetroChina, say, Sasak first time, uh, Energy Ministry second time. You must imagine how depressive this is when you have to ask a lot of, uh, get asked a lot of questions and you wonder, because I mean, these auditors, believe me, it's like our auditors here in a different level, they need success. They, they have to have a corpse to show, you know, I, f I found the guy. 
so Sanopec is in, in stress, really in stress. So you can imagine the decision-taking or no decision-taking uh, because of this. But the biggest worry to me is what this former minister said to me, expect mistakes. But he said something while we were actually leaving the room and he saw our sullen face. Uh, and he said, take advantage of that. And we said, what the hell, shall we take advantage of that? And then we realized while working on a new project that actually the kind of well-connected, well-organized uh, interest groups that are pushing us away from a d major deal were not existing anymore. So all of a sudden we had, I wouldn't say, you know, clean sweep and, you know, free, free freies Feld and stuff. We, we actually realized that, yeah, the corruption campaign is cool. So the BISF just invested, or is going to invest, 10 billion uh, into Guangdong province. Um, where do you see China in five years? Why didn't you say 10 years? Because I'm <laughs> retired and no one cares. You will see, be responsible until yeah, the end a, of your day. Seventh plenum in the fourth <laughs> plenum of the BISF. Where do I see China? First of all, when you project personal consumption per capita, of virtually every item, be it cosmetics, detergents, diapers, uh, cars, and so forth. China is where Japan was in the 60s and Korea in the 70s. So just by projecting this also, when you use Taiwan, you can see what kind of potential there is in the consumption story of China. Uh, and all of these countries went through massive financial crisis, so expect one from China. Um, and uh, so just get prepared for it. Um, but there is the long-term positive view of like, you know, these are similar people, similar working skills, similar working ethics. You know, they're going to they're gonna pull through and, and do this. Um, the second is that um, uh, we think it's more cyclical. So if you're a good company, you actually try to figure out the cyclical development, tighten the ship. And while you tighten the ship, invest, because then this one is getting cheap. Um, so uh, we had this in the 90s. Uh, when we had an Asian financial crisis, everyone was running for the exit. Only BSF was running into uh, the Chinese market. At that time, I remember all the analysts saying, are you crazy? You know, Thailand this, Indonesia this, China is fiddling with numbers, and you invest in $3 billion in Nanjing. Are you kidding me? And we built this. We got this plant up very, very, very cheap because we bought virtually parts of the second hand as it was stranded in some countries. And I wouldn't say that I expect now to have the same impact on Zhangjiang, which is our project, but you know, something which is not that far off. It's a good time to believe in the long-term story of China. It's a good time to invest when it's getting cyclical, if you get the cyclical right. And uh, God bless me if I get the circle wrong, yeah. So Frank, we prepared much more questions. What else do you want to ask? <laughs> yeah, it's a question that we haven't talked about at all. Um, do you think that the EU should sign a BRI, a Belt and Road Initiative, MOU with China? <laughs> um, well, two observations. First of all, um, BRI is when we asked one of Xi Jinping's advisors two years ago, what is BRI? And he said to us, you know, it's a good idea. It really is. But we can't figure out how to do it. It's just like a great idea. And it will be very messy. Um, we asked the CEO of a big energy company. At that time, it was still called One Belt, One Road. Uh, and he said to me, oh, One Belt, One Trap. Uh, and we thought this is a translation error. 
uh, but the guy was good in English, so he said it again <laughs> in English, um, saying that his company went global 20 years ago uh, because the government said so, burned billions, came back limping, learned the trade, made a mistake in the textbook, and now they actually are very, very good company going global. So he says, my peers will go through the same cycle of going global, the government said so. Second is, I can get my money abroad, you know, and I have a good reason for it. It's called Belgian Road and ends up in Dubai, in Switzerland, whatnot, uh, by 150 soccer clubs, as they did. Um, and, uh, and of course, then, uh, it is something which leads to massive burning of billions. I mean, it's... It's sometimes staggering to see, you know, what Hainan lost, what other companies lost, and how uh, Hui Xin, the CFSC company that wanted to buy into my wife's company, Rosneft, uh, for 11 billion, the guy vanished overnight, and the deal was going th through. Even the Russians uh, get screwed like this. So, in a way, I guess, first of all, the, the thing is it's an idea. Second, there's no office where you can go and ask for uh, this kind of thing. Third, it is, it is a campaign-style thing, communist-style, that tells the companies go global. And you can actually benefit from this. If they sell a train, if they sell an airport, if this, they, of course, need Siemens, ABB, and, and whatnot. BSF more in the back of this. But it, it's, of course, we are sub-suppliers to this. Um, and uh, they don't want everyone to know about it. So if, if uh, uh, CRR is selling a train to somewhere, then, you know, Georg, Georg Marienhütte and, and Siemens and, and uh, others, uh, they shall not talk about the fact that actually part of the train, the real good one, is from Germany. So, so it's a Chinese train. So the, it's, it has to be a successful storyline. Um, the problem that now exists is that, as a Chinese diplomat said to me, uh, the money goes first, the flag follows. The money screws up, the flag is still there, and the money is gone. And it's sort of like they always have to deal with this kind of damn it. And it's the same what happened in the energy field many years ago, in particular in Iran, when they went in and hurrah and left, uh, and the Chinese officials were stuck. So the way now we have a lot of situations like Sri Lanka, Maldives, and others, where the government is aching to see what happens and what kind of political dynamite they have to deal with. And then you have this 93-year-old guy coming from Kuala Lumpur telling them they are colonialists. I mean, that really hurt. And, and so you have the situation where they say, okay, this guy, uh, let's make the street shorter and then take 20% uh, off the price level. Uh, so he's happy. He comes to Beijing, celebrates, you know, I got a good deal, stuff like this. But then everyone else who has signed up with the Chinese Belt and Road Project and has not pitched will say, man, he saved 20%, how come I didn't? And if he doesn't ask the question or she doesn't ask the question to herself, definitely the constituency will ask the question is, how come you didn't get this discount? You just have to be tough like Mahathir. So I guess the Chinese are actually in, in a very delicate position when they go global that they have created a story now of like, if you bitch enough, you change your government, you actually get a discount. Um, and the second is that... Uh, uh, the story is out that we built and we leave behind so much debt that you will give it to us, uh, a treaty port in Sri Lanka, for example. Of all things, the scheme of 99 years, how could they? Um, and so, in a way, um, uh, it, it's, it's going to be very difficult. It's, it's something also where um, uh, it's becoming visibly a challenge, a train uh, load. Um, containers from China to Europe, um, we want to put stuff in Chongqing on the uh, train to ship it to Ufa in the Urals for our customer. 
And in China, there's a ruling of no dangerous goods, meaning chemicals, some of the chemicals on trains, only on trucks, which is illogical because anywhere in the else world it's on trains, but not on trucks. But in China, if a train blows up, the whole company is in trouble politically. Uh, if a truck blows up, it's one of these little things it's somewhere in Hebei, Shoujiazhuang, and who cares? So, you know, we have these time bombs going through China. So we cannot get this damn thing from Chongqing to Ufa. So what do you have to do, even though there's a train going to Duisburg? Uh, we have to ship it to Shanghai, transship it to Vladivostok, put it on the train, and put it to Ufa. So, and we go like, guys, I mean, Belt and Road, this is supposed to be facilitating trade and uh, gets this thing into Europe and we can get uh, the Russians happy, the Kyrgyz, everyone else who accepts this thing. Impossible, impossible. Chinese domestic law screws Belt and Road. And the second is, of course, the problem is that hardly any of that stuff goes from Germany back to China. And Mannheim, my, next to my hometown Heidelberg, uh, the most recent train left, 42 containers, full thing, uh, 41 were empty. But here comes the good news. The 42nd one had local Eichbaum beer in it. <laughs> Jörg, you know, if you come to our China Lounge, you have to play a game in the end. Today we play the game, which my daughter's favorite one at the moment. She always asks me either or, and you can choose, but you have to decide. So what would you rather return? Your Lei Feng Award or the Bundesverdienstkreuz? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, honestly, Bundesverdienstkreuz means more, but Lei Fong was cool. <laughs> okay, so there was not a decision. Uh, Bundesverdienstkreuz. <laughs> what do you prefer? Prefer WeChat or WhatsApp? Um, I haven't used both until recently. I, I looked, it was awkward. Uh, until my 11-year-old got a mobile phone, and because of his soccer moms and, and all these school things, uh, three weeks ago, I joined WeChat. And now? Uh, I'm a guy who's not sure if this is a good idea. Okay. What do you prefer, credit card or Alipay? Credit card. I'm old-fashioned. Come on, I'm 60. <laughs> Cap or Didi? The uh, oh. app to get a again. taxi. Uh, <laughs> again, it's Cap, I'm afraid. I'm so sorry. Okay. But, yeah. So you were not touching your I mobile really phone? Had a, I really had a bad experience, and I might change to Didi in Shanghai recently. I was so naive. I was standing at the hotel, and there was no taxi. And then I was standing, and they all went past me empty, and they were waving at me, very friendly, you know. But I couldn't get one of them to stop, and I thought, okay, jumping in front of them, it would be impressive, but not effective. So uh, uh, I might change to DD also. It, it was horrible. I, it took me 40 minutes to get a bloody cap. So, Jörg, you haven't touched your mobile phone for at least 19 minutes. What will you post at the end of this evening? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Me too. And uh, that was the China Lounge. Thank you, Frank, for hosting it with me. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jörg. So we will watch very closely what happens on May 28 in Beijing when the European Chamber has to decide who will become its new president. We wish you all the best for a third term. And thank you for joining us and thank you for coming. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.